Well, find Psalm 92, please, in your Bible. Psalm 92. Last week, Russell preached on Psalm 91. The two are really not connected at all. I was maybe kind of hoping they were as I got into it, but they're not. Um, So all week long, I've been trying to make a connection to Psalm 92 for you. We live along Highway 92. So that's where my brain went. Uh, Highway 92 um, is a a curvy road, uh, up and down road, uh, constantly under construction road, right? They've been working between us and Kearney for a while now, and they're getting ready to shut down another portion of it. So we have to make all these detours. And it can be frustrating if you have to get from one place to the other, and and all of a sudden you've got to take a different route. And uh, But... Our hope and our prayer is that at the end of the day, we'll be thankful that they did what they did. Would you at least hold out that hope with me, right? Psalm 92. Sometimes road takes us, the road of life takes us places we don't want to go. There are detours. It's dangerous at times. But in the end, we will be thankful that God did it the way he did it. Okay? That's where my brain went. And so I have to take you with me now. That's kind of the theme of this psalm. It is a psalm of praise. If you didn't notice the, word, the music this morning, it had a lot to do with how we praise God. And the challenge of that is not in a Sunday morning service, but when we get the bad news, when, when detours come our way, can we still praise God? And so um, I think it's very instructive. It's helpful for me uh, to remember that God deserves our praise um, every moment, every day, as we're going to learn in the morning and in the night. And at the end of the day, we'll know why, maybe, but we can trust him with that. And so read with me these verses in Psalm um, 92. I'm going to read the subscript as well. We've covered this enough during this study that those subscripts are part of the scripture and they teach us some things. So it's a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. That's the point I want you to remember and we'll get back to that. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. To the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand. That though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Let's pray. God, I needed to learn this psalm. I needed to see what it means to um, trust in you even when life takes its detours and things are under construction, God. I have the promises of your word that um, everything will be straightened out, and it will be exactly as you designed. And so teach us to praise you, God. Teach us that it is good to praise the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I couldn't get past verse half, first half of verse 1, it is good to praise the Lord. That just stuck in my brain. And, and 
every day, I think this week, that simple and profound statement just came. When good news or bad news, when good news comes, hey, it's good to praise the Lord, you know, right? When bad news comes, it's still good to praise the Lord. You may have a translation that says it's good to give thanks to the Lord. It's the same thing. It's the same word that the Hebrew word there means to praise God and give him thanks for what, what he's done. And as I mentioned, the, the sub point or the subtitle there is this, this is a psalm for the Sabbath. And so A, I have gathered to worship. Now, this is not technically the Sabbath. We are on a Sunday, the first day of the week. The early church began worshiping on the first day of the week because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. And despite what our friends who are Seventh-day Adventists are Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, among the things they sometimes get wrong or do get wrong is the day of worship. Um, the Sabbath is was for the Old Testament was a very important day. If you remember, it's one of the Ten Commandments. And we are sometimes questioned before not worshiping on a Saturday, but instead on a Sunday. And so I want to do a little work on just what it meant for them to gather on a Sabbath day, to have a psalm written for that occasion. The Leviticus and others call the Sabbath a sacred assembly. We have assembled, we have gathered for something special, for something different, for something sacred means set apart. I know it's getting ready to happen. This is not a red Sunday yet. There's no Chiefs game today. 80 plus thousand will gather at Arrowhead or whatever it's called now these days. I'm still Arrowhead. Gia, I think it is. G-E-H-A. We are gathered for something different. We are gathered to worship God. That's, that's what a sacred assembly does. And the, the reason the Sabbath was set up in the first place, if you remember back to creation, God worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh day. That day was set apart when no work was to be done. And just as God rested on his work, the Sabbath points us to a day when all the work is completed and we can rest from working. And I'm going to make the connection here. Apart from Jesus Christ, we have to work, do the law, do the commandments to be right with God. Jesus comes, dies, rises again, pays that debt for us, says it is finished. Just like God rested from work in creation, we can rest in the done work of Jesus Christ on the Sabbath. Jesus Christ, New Testament fleshes this out, is the Sabbath rest of the church. He is the fulfillment of that picture. And so we as believers rest and totally rely on his work. The Sabbath commandment is not repeated in the New Testament. All the other commandments are. We're still to honor God. We're still to not lie to our parents. And we're still not to murder, all that kind of stuff. The one that's not repeated is the idea of the Sabbath. And the author of Hebrews makes a big point of this. I'm going to read you a couple sections. You can jot these down or even turn there if you want. But Hebrews 4 talks about the fact that Joshua recognized or saw this. And then Hebrews 10. So I'll be in chapter 4 for a second. Hebrews 4, 8 through 10, if Joshua had given them rest, meaning when they got into the promised land, that would have been all that God had promised them. If Joshua had given them rest, then God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rests, rest also rests from their works just as God did for, from his. The author of Hebrews is saying that the Jews believed that the promised land was it, right? They needed to get there because that meant God gave them everything. The promised land was just a picture of what God promised to everybody. And the author of Hebrews is saying Joshua didn't fulfill that because even later in the Bible, talk about this rest that God was going to provide. Down to chapter 10. 
It says, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a brand, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from our guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. The reason we gathered, the author of Hebrews said, don't forget to do this. This is important. Gathering together shows us that God made that promise and it was fulfilled in Christ. Not in those Old Testament laws. We can rest from our work because God did all that work. Our gathering together is important. This was one of the big challenges. I don't want to keep living this out, but over the last few years, right, when we literally were told we couldn't and you had to do all these things, there is great joy when God's people gather together. And it is, again, I'm not, I won't say this because I just know reality, but it's not yet football season. But let me get this off my chest, okay? I don't, it doesn't go very far with me to say, well, it's early. Folks get up at the crack of dawn to get their tailgating done and they'll stay out in the freezing cold for something. You can get to church. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? And you know my heart. I don't, I don't beat you over the head with this through the years, but I'm just telling you, that's the reality. When a pastor hears, well, it's a little early. He knows you're hunting, right? He knows you're going to games. He knows all that stuff. It's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of decisions. We need to decide that this is important, what we do. And praise God, we've had a pretty good run of it for 22 years. I'm not, you know, if you're a guest here, I'm not beating them over the head because they didn't show up last week. I can't remember if you showed up last week. Raise your hand if you, no, I'm, I don't want to get you on it. And so what God was doing was pointing them to this. So I have a serious question for you. Why are you here today? Okay. Why do you come to church? It is to give thanks to God and praise his name. That's what we do. Now, there's all kinds of facets to it, but that's why we are here because he deserves that. We're here to give him praise. We're here to give him thanks. And some things that happens when churches gather sometimes, people come and they'll say things like this. Man, I'm really beating on you today. They'll say, well, I didn't get much out of worship today. I pray you get a ton out of worship. The question is, what did God get out of worship today? Are our hearts set towards him? This is, we are not consumers here. We are the, we are the choir singing to God. And David said, it's not what happens up here that matters. It's in, you know, the Bible say people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God wants to receive our worship. He deserves our worship. That's why we're here. A, we should gather for worship. B, now I'll get to verse one. It's good to worship. It is good to praise the Lord. It's good for two reasons. It's right. God deserves our praise, period, okay? He is totally other than us. He's done everything for us. It is right. He deserves our worship. This is one of the ways that it's good. We come to sing to him. We come to worship him. We come to serve him and serve him only. Our whole life should be about worship. He is the only one that's worthy of that. Ever think to yourself, I don't feel like going to worship today, or I don't feel like worshiping this morning. Good, 
Can I admit something as your pastor? You can probably see this coming. There's some Sundays I'm not excited to get here. But God is the audience. He deserves it. It's right to worship him. And I want to bring in a couple verses from Romans that we often use, maybe disconnected from worship, but they're not. Romans, as you know, paints the picture that everybody has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, whether you're Jew or Greek, okay? That's part of the thinking there. Romans 1, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. That's exactly what Psalm 1 is, or Psalm 92 is talking about. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. That does not just describe the people of the first century to whom Paul was writing. That describes people today who know God, but don't glorify him and don't give him thanks. Later on in that chapter, that's verse 21 of chapter 1, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve created things rather than their creator who is forever praised. Amen. So anytime something else comes above God, we're acting just like Romans 1 is describing why God's judgment comes on everybody because Jesus is not desert, getting the worship that he deserves. So it's right to worship God. It's, it's right to give thanks to God because it's just right. Secondly, it is good for us too, though. It's refreshing to us. I mentioned earlier, there's some Sundays I don't really want to come to church. And, and by the way, that's r- rare. Um, <laughs> I'm not talking myself into this every week. Okay. But, you know, you have those moments. Um, I have a phrase when, when I'm running that says, I'm always glad I ran. I don't want to get out the door. I, and, and by the way, I'm not running these days either. So this is a bad illustration, but I'm almost always glad I ran. I feel better after the fact. Can I tell you, I'm always glad I worship. It's, it's good for me. It sets my heart at peace. It calms my spirit. It reorients my focus. It puts proper perspective on things, as this psalm does. Martin Luther has a, a quote, says, Come, let us sing a, pra- a psalm and drive the devil away. Okay? And so it's good to praise the Lord, not just because he deserves it, but because it's good for us. It's a good thing to do that. Psalm thirty-five, eighteen. this is why we gather it. I will give thanks to in the great assembly among the throngs, I will praise you. And then Psalm 105 says, I will praise the Lord, proclaim his name, and make known that the nations what he has done. Both our evangelism and our gathered worship are so that God gets the glory that he deserves. And then verse 1 goes on to say, and make music to your name, O Most High. Don't forget we're singing about God to God, O Most High. It can happen that sometimes we forget who we're singing to, Right? I am not a good singer, but I love singing with God's people, okay? And when my mic gets left on accidentally, you know both of those things. But it is, I am here for God. I I hope I'm here for God. I hope you're here for God too. You're singing to God. We add our voice to creation's chorus. That's part of what that song was about. That The rocks wish that they could sing. That's our pleasure. That's what we get to do. And there's other places in the... Scripture, but God is the one we worship. When Jesus was confronted with the fact that people were worshiping him, and he he was told, tell them to be quiet. He said, I tell you, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones will cry out. Who else, as we just sang, would the rocks cry out to Who else would rocks cry out to worship, whose glory taught the stars to shine? 
Perhaps creation longs to have the words to sing, but that joy is mine. We alone can voice that. Um, a few weeks ago, I was gone in, in Denver at a, at a replanting, church replanting conference. And, and this is not a put down. I don't mean this is a, a put down at all. But there is something going to pastors' conferences when a bunch of pastors sing and you hear them. Okay. Maybe it's just that they're, they're all, they're, they're, they're men mostly. And so you really hear men's voices like maybe you don't hear in a gathering like this. So men sing out. But pastors are like, in many ways, um, some of them at these conferences are very desperate and they know God needs to hear them. There's just something, and I don't want to just put it on that, but there's something about a gathered group of people who are desperate to worship God and to hear their voices. That's what this psalm is talking about. Again, David hit it right. I don't know if you pay attention, but we are hoarding musical talent in this church. They, they sacrifice and they give their time and, and their talents to make Sunday mornings happen. And I love them and they do a great job. But we're not putting on a show here. We're here to lead you in worship. And with all respect to them, my favorite moments of Sunday, it happened twice this morning, is when the music goes down and the the congregation sings and you hear the voices in the room. That's what Psalm, is talk, Psalm 92 is talking about. It is good to make music to your name. That's what we've done this morning. It goes on to say in verse 2, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. This is a practice. I, I can't say I've done it all my life. When I started studying this Psalm, I started doing this. So for a week or two now, when I wake up in the morning, I try to proclaim the love of God. Try to be the first thing that comes to mind. It's not usually, but I get there, hopefully. The, the, the love of God that's talking about here is, is Hebrew word hesed. It means his, his covenant um, mercy, his covenant commitment to us, his, his, his love towards us that's faithful. And every morning, if you think about it, when you open your eyes in the morning, if it's not for the faithful love of God, then I'm not breathing this morning, right? It's, every day is a gift of God's just love to us. It's in his mercy, it's in his hesed that we can even start the day. And that's a good way to start your day, by the way. I've learned this, that every, you know, if I say, I'm going to proclaim your love in the morning, God, thank you for giving me this day. And then it says, in your faithfulness at night. So at the end of the day, and faithfulness means exactly what it means, is God came through again. Just think of your days like this. If this would change the way you go through your weeks, it has mine. Wake up, oh God, thanks for another day. This is a gift from you in your mercy. And at the end of the day, saying, well, God, we made it through another one. You were faithful all through the day. Some of the things I worried about, either we got through them or you're still going to be faithful. But all that will just kind of put this all together. Charles Spurgeon said, God's mercy is sweetest when collected and gathered before the hot sun. If you just start your day, it'll change your day. I'm telling you that. Verse 3, the music, to the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. As I mentioned earlier, we've got some musicians around here. And this is not, and there's some that would say you shouldn't have instruments in worship. There's called Primitive Baptists and other groups that say that. Um, Psalm 92, I think, argues against that. And it's wonderful to have the combination, I think, of the musicians and the guitars and the drums and all that stuff with the voices of the people. Well... 
that's point B. Point C is God is worshipped. Don't forget again, it is the Lord or the Lord Most High that we worship. And I want to give you two reasons we are to worship God. One, we are to worship Him for His deeds. So look down at verse 4. For you make make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing or shout, some versions say, for joy at what your hands have done. The, the clarification is what God's hands have done, not what my hands have done. But I am to praise God, among other things, by his deeds, by the work that he's done with his hands. Psalm 90 put it this way, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us and establish the work of our hands. God's the one that's working, right? And, and we need to latch on to that and realize God, even in our sanctification, it is God working through us. We need to understand that God has done some marvelous things that we could praise him for. If we were to take the time this morning, I'm sure we could come up with quite a list of good things God has done. Maybe at the time you didn't think it, but now you could say, I could add that to the list of thanksgiving and the list of praise. Verse 5, how great are your deeds, Lord. There's that same thing. But how profound are your thoughts. So not only do we worship God for his deeds, but for his design. His thoughts are profound. Meaning he's doing things that we don't understand. These are the detours. These are the things that slow us down. That we don't like. These are the caution, construction going on stuff. Okay? And so Deuteronomy puts it this way. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to belong to us and our children forever that we may follow all the words of the law. Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, inscrutable his ways. When we can't appreciate his deeds, we need to trust his ways. We need to trust his plan. That's called faith, by the way, seeing things that we can't see with our own eyes. But we need to understand that there is times when God doesn't seem to show up. Doesn't seem like he's running the show. And so I did this little thought experiment. Because maybe you've done this. Wouldn't you like to be God for the day? What, what? Okay, I know. Don't get too philosophical here. Let's just be raw. Yeah, there's some things I would want to do different. Okay. Now let me flip this a little bit. Would you trust that with anybody else on the planet? Even your closest, most trusted, would you say, I want them to be God for the day? Isn't it kind of silly to think I would do a better job than God does? And it gets really scary when I think you would do a better job than God does. We need to trust him not only for his deeds, it says, but his profound thoughts, his deep thoughts, the things that are secret to us. And we just don't, again, that comes by faith. So one, we need, it is good to praise the Lord. Secondly, it is good, I'm sorry, it is God who will purge the land. It is God who will purge the land. A, I have their senseless people. Look at verse six. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand. Okay? These words are all loaded. We, we use English words and we kind of forget maybe the meaning of the, to be senseless 
and to be foolish, or, uh, there's a little nuance to this. To be senseless is to be like an animal, strictly driven by your senses. Okay, it kind of loses it in the English. It means to be stupid like a, like a, like a brute beast. It's to be brutish. Meaning I'm just driven by what my flesh says, what, what my, my human mind says. And to be a fool is not just you're dumb. It's, a, it's, it's, it's as much a moral thing as a mental thing. It means you're making foolish decisions. You may be the smartest person in the world, but you can be a fool because you're making poor decisions. And so verse 6 says there are senseless people driven just by their flesh. And there are fools driven more by their decisions that are poor than just their lack of ability to make decisions. And they don't understand this. Go read Psalm 73 this afternoon, and the whole thing's the same thing. Because if you stop to verse 5, okay, it's good to praise the Lord, and sometimes there's things we don't like and you don't do. The problem is there's people in this world, and we don't want to be them, who don't like it when things don't go our way. And so we begin thinking like foolish, senseless people. We begin not understanding what the first half of this psalm said, which is God is still to be praised. And so what senseless people, point A, don't understand is point B, short-lived prosperity. Look at verse 7. They don't understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. Okay? That's what this world does not understand. That's what in our lack of faith sometimes we don't understand. Because we look at the foolish, we look at the evil things, we look at the detours and the construction and all that, and we don't understand it. What we don't understand is that's just going to last for a moment. The wicked, they spring up like grass, okay? And the evildoers flourish. All evildoers flourish. But just for a moment, they'll be destroyed forever. And so the, 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 the decision before is you want to have a really good, you know, a few decades on this planet or an eternity. That's the dynamics. And so what the psalmist is saying is they don't get this. I think of flowers here that they're so beautiful, but they're, they, they're grown just to be plucked, you know, and, and given away. Many of the things that we fret about and, and rightly get upset about are just for a moment. And someday they will add to the bouquet of what God has done and it will, it will be seen for what it is. Psalm 73, I told you to read it. This is a few verses. Surely you place them on slippery ground and cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. This is common in the Bible just to say, don't, it's like waking up from a dream. And I've had a very blessed life. And maybe I don't understand what you're going through, what you have gone through. But someday in Christ, it will all be like a bad dream. And all those bad things will be destroyed forever. And all the good things will enjoy forever. And verse 8 says, but you, Lord, are forever exalted. See, God will be glorified. And when all things are said and done, we will be thankful the way God did it. It's hard to see now, and I get that. But that's what the psalmist is trying to communicate. And point C is they are sure to perish. Verse 9 says, "You Surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. Okay? A few points there. Don't forget they're God's enemies, not necessarily your enemies. Although Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Many of the things that make us upset and worried are people not liking God. 
right? They don't like what God stands for. They don't like righteousness. They see the light, but they love the darkness, Jesus would explain. But we need to, first of all, remember that if somebody is against me or against something I stand for, it is ultimately against God. And some of the disciples would say this, we consider it an honor to be, you know, looked down upon because they see Christ in us. I think we would do well to say this is an attack on God more than it's an attack on me. And then I can still love and pray for even my enemies because they're really mad at what God's doing, not, not at me. The other thing for us to remember is that we, apart from Christ, are God's enemies. When it says, surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. The, the New Testament, both Colossians and Romans says this very clearly. We are God's enemies unless we're reconciled through Christ. And while we were his enemies, he sent Jesus to reconcile us. God saved us while we were his enemies. Okay? And again, I think that plays out into how we live in this world. We, we need to be extending the invitation to even our greatest enemies to know God. It's, that's what God did to us. And you remain an enemy if you remain apart from Christ. You will perish. You will be destroyed forever, it talked about there. Second Peter says this, you are not slow. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If God has not judged you for your sins and you've not accepted Christ, it is only his patience because he wants you to accept his son's forgiveness. You are given this day to perhaps call out to him. Verse 10 you have exalted my horn. That's a symbol of status and strength. Like that of a wild ox. Now, I don't know if anybody's called you a wild ox lately, but that's a compliment in Psalm 92. In fact, I think if you read the King James, it's actually called a uh, unicorn there. So have fun with that. But the wild ox was the proverbial powerful animal. It was something to be honored and respected. And so what the, what the psalmist said here is, you've exalted my strength and You've exalted me like a powerful animal and fine oils have been poured on me, just showing that God is blessing us and welcoming us. Verse 11, my eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries and my ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. Verse 11, I wrote the word next to this, by faith. Again, maybe the road's not done yet. Maybe you can't say today, I have seen the defeat of my adversaries. And I have heard the rout of my wicked foes. Let me start with this. Our greatest adversary and our most wicked foe is our self and our sin. And on the cross, I have seen the defeat of my adversary. I have heard the rout of my foe. Jesus has defeated sin. He's defeated me in my flesh and given me new life. But by faith, I can also trust that things that will all work out at the end. And as Romans says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Point three, it is by God's grace that we live productive lives. A, we will flourish. Verse 12 and 13, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like the seat, like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of God. Again, you've probably never been called a wild ox, nor have you been called a palm tree. But palm trees flourish when it seems like they shouldn't. In the sand and in the dryness often, palm trees are there. They are evergreens that grow in, in some of the hardest areas. 
No matter what this world throws at, no matter how many detours, we can still stand like palm trees when nobody else can figure out why. And the cedars of Lebanon were notorious for their strength and just their longevity as well. And we have those promises. And then look at verse 13 again. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. I don't know if anybody's called you a house plant lately. But the promises are that just like a house plant, God will care for you and watch over you. Daisy Smith's here today. She regularly comes and shakes the tree in the lobby because a shaken tree gets stronger roots. She waters a lot of these plants. That care, you, maybe you have house plants. If you're a plant person, you get this more than people like me who kill plants, not on purpose, but that's how it goes. You're not just a palm tree well watered and all that stuff. You're in the house of the Lord. You're one of his house plants. You're welcome. Point B, you will be fruitful. It says they will bear fruit in their old age. This verse is sponsored by AARP. And some of you in your old age say, wait, I don't want to be fruitful in my old age. But think of what the picture is here, is that an old person has a lot to offer. God's not done with them. They have wisdom. They have prayer. They still have service. We never retire from our Christian service. Praise God for the older people that are fruitful in their age. I'll let you decide if you're old or not. But the promise of God is that that we do not wither away, but we flourish. And frankly, we will be reborn one day in a new body, and it just gets better and better. If you're not a Christian, this world is the best it's ever going to get. And if you are a Christian, this world is the worst it's ever going to get. And it may be great, but we will bear fruit in our old age. I had some fun with the phrase grumpy old man this week. I don't want to be a grumpy old man. I want to be a godly old man or godly old woman. And if I am a grumpy old man, I want to be the old man that was grumpy and not me. We will be fruitful. See, we will be fresh. It says they will stay fresh and green. Again, think of trees here. With our age and our maturity, we stay fresh and green, productive, And he will be famous, this point D, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. All this again is to bring glory. It is good to praise the Lord. Because a productive life will show that. And Christ is the one you can build your life on and you won't be shaken. He's the one that keeps you fresh and fruitful to the end of the age. Matthew Henry says, all who have ever trusted in God found him faithful and all sufficient and none were ever made ashamed of their hope in him. It is good to praise the Lord. And so when we sing this song again, we're going to say, I don't know how many, I should have counted how many times we will say the word hallelujah in this song, but we will say it for thousands of years and thousands more times. We will be thankful. If you are here today and you don't know Christ, I beg of you. God is being patient with you. He doesn't want you to be perish, to perish. And this is really the best it gets because one day all wickedness will be destroyed. And I am included in that except for Christ. I was an enemy of God. We're all enemies of God deserving judgment and someday will be destroyed forever. But the rest of us will live forever. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you. It is truly good to praise you. I thank you for this reminder from Psalm 92 that it is good to praise our Lord for his deeds, and for his design. 
God, you deserve worship for both. God, it all comes together in Jesus Christ. He is the judgment for sin and all the wickedness we wish you would punish. You punished in him. And God, help us to rest in that if we know you. Help us to run to that if we don't. It is good to praise the Lord. God, may we add our voices with the instruments to sing praise to you. It is good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.